I'm Toby Kincaid. Let's be honest. Big oil runs the world. Our industrial modern civilization is on the precipice. We risk a lot in a world continue to be run on fossil fuels. The economic pressures, the toxic pressures, and the political pressures. It's a valuable commodity. And it's big business. You know, we mentioned 90 million barrels of oil per day. You know, $30 per barrel. You know, you're north of $2.7 billion every 24 hours. Uh, that's an amazing industry. And just like previous civilizations, like the Greeks and the Romans after them, this idea of an energy crisis uh, led to their downfalls. Uh, Rome was uh, an amazing empire. But if you asked any citizen who lived in the time, you know, how, would you, what do you think is going to happen to the Roman Empire? The thought would last forever. I mean, when you're so close to a, a civilization, when you're in that civilization, the notion of its demise is sometimes hard to consider. So, to the Romans and the Greeks before them, they were saved in large part uh, by solar energy. They went to the natural, powerful energies that are all around them and use them to great utility. And this was what's so amazing about the ancient Romans, for example. They were practical. The engineering uh, advances were astounding in all fields, and particularly in architecture. You know, uh, Vitruvius, in the first century BC, he's the, the, you know, the preeminent architect uh, of one century before the Common Era. And he, he would write, you know, we must begin by taking note of the countries and climates in which homes are to be built, if our designs for them are to be correct. One type of house seems appropriate for Egypt, another for Spain, one still different for Rome, and so on, with lands and countries of varying characteristics. This is because one part of the earth is directly under the sun's course, another is far away from it, while another lies midway between these two. It is obvious that designs for homes ought to conform to diversities of climate. Okay. So here you have uh, Vitruvius kind of pointing out the marvelous uh, and useful aspects of the sun as a real power supply. Now, there's two cultures in the world that really love baths, probably the ancient Romans and the Japanese. You know, but if you're in Japan, you have uh, volcanic hot springs, you have the onsen. So this was a great advantage. But in ancient Rome, uh, they had to use, use their hypocausts. Those were the furnaces that had the bricks with holes in them they put together for ducting. So they did some amazing development. But one of the great innovations of Roman solar technology was the development of the greenhouse. Now, before in ancient Greece, you know, they, they had windows that would face the western sun and, of course, south. And this, of course, would allow them to, 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 to reach solar gain. But they closed the windows, you know, with shutters and with, with drapery and things of that nature. So it wasn't until the Romans, around the first century, a little bit beforehand. You know, now, glass has been known to the Romans for 3,000 years. There's an old and established history for, for glassmaking in, in ancient Rome. 
And they had all kinds of techniques for this. Uh, they, they knew how to blow glass into bulbs, and then they would kind of spin them around and make them into a cylinder. And then while they're hot, they'd take some iron scissors and, and cut them down the lengthwise, and then spread them out on an iron sheet uh, sprinkled with sand. And so with various rollers, they could kind of make sheet glass, you know, quite amazing. And another big industry was taking uh, mica or, or selenite. And these are very translucent stones that they could kind of um, nap so that you'd have these beautiful, very thin plates. Well, somewhere around the first century BC, some brilliant Roman, probably Vitruvius, figured out that you could use southern-facing um, heliocanamus. This is, the, this is the room, the solar furnace room. And what they did is they had the southern-facing windows, and they would use glass or this thin mica. And this was a solar greenhouse. It, it produced a huge solar gain. The rooms were very hot and wonderful for the baths. Now, the baths were a big deal for Roman culture. It was central to everything that they did. And you can imagine that some of the largest ones were immense. They could house 2,000 Romans. And, you know, if you were a Roman citizen at the, at the peak of the Roman Empire, you had free access to the circus and to the baths. So... You know, somewhere around the first century, you have uh, uh, Seneca, who was kind of describing the situation in the baths, and he wrote, um, Picture to yourself the assortment of sounds, which are strange enough to make me hate the very powers of hearing. When your strenuous gentleman, for example, is exercising himself, flourishing laden weights, when he is working hard, or pretends to be working hard, I can hear him grunt, and when he releases his imprisoned breath, I can hear him panting and wheezing in high-pitched tones. Or perhaps I notice the lazy fellow content with a cheap rub-down, and the crack and pummeling hand on his shoulder varies in sound as the hand is laid on flat or hollow. Add to this the arresting of an occasional pickpocket and the racket of the man who always likes to hear his own voice in the bath, or the enthusiast who plunges into the swimming pool with inconscionable, unconscionable noise and splashing. Then he, then there's the cake seller and the different cries, the sausage man and the confectioner, and all the vendors of food hawking their wares, each with his own distinctive intonation. Okay, so here's Seneca. So you can see from that description, in a sense, that the Roman bath was, was Roman culture. And the use of solar energy made that possible. So for the Romans, solar energy was not some hypothetical could-be, would-be. You know, they were in the middle of empire. You needed a lot of wood to forge a lot of iron to build a lot of siege machines, to fuel all of the cooking and heating that was done throughout the empire. The military-industrial complex, if you will, of Rome required a bountiful and steady supply of energy. So when this became interrupted with these far-flung, uh, you know, by the fourth century, it really was almost all over, and uh, Rome eventually collapsed, as we covered, covered earlier. But what's really extraordinary is that these technologies are so vital and so useful. Now, after the Roman Empire disintegrated, 
Most of this technology was lost for a thousand years. Now, there's a, a 12th century friend, Siskin monk, uh, I don't recall his name, but uh, he started experimenting with kind of the hot boxes that would allow you to, to grow foods that the Romans developed. And, uh, well, he was you know, burned at the stake for being a heretic. So there's a price to be paid. But for a thousand years, uh, through the Dark Ages, uh, Europe uh, lost all of this architecture, all of this knowledge, and all of the use of the practical, the very practical use of solar energy to do real work, to heat your homes and to heat the baths, and among other many useful aspects of living well. Okay. So, we talked about the big shakeout that was happening 130 years ago. You know, at Standard Oil, who had moved from kerosene because of Tesla's electricity into this new market of internal combustion engine fuels. So, after the demise of Rudolf Diesel, who was pushing for, and credibly so, an actual world of engines built on burning biofuels. You know, with uh, diesel's engine, you could run any kind of oil, a plant oil, an animal oil, a rock oil. So, you know, diesel had this whole paradigm that he was pushing for. And with his death, um, and I believe with his, his murder, um, the entire third of this triad was knocked out in one fell swoop. Well, at this time, 130 years ago, as this is all happening... There was one more industrial revolution, which was right at the dawn, right at the beginning of demonstrability, which excited some of the most brilliant engineering minds, inventive minds of the century. And really the father of solar energy technology in the modern age was a Frenchman named Augustine Machaut. Now, Machaut in uh, 1860, was a professor of mathematics at uh, Le Cie de Tours in France. And like most Frenchmen, he was very concerned about the current industrial situation. See, imagine you're in France. It's 1860. You're in industrial competition with countries like England. Now, England had a big advantage. They had coal, a lot of coal, and it was close to the surface. So you didn't have to work very hard to get it. And also, uh, Britain is much smaller than France. Well, the problem France had is it didn't have any coal. It was having an energy crisis. So, you know, France did have coal, but it was way out in the frontier. It was way, you know, along the Pyrenees, you know, the, the mountain range that separates France and Spain. So it would take a lot of railroad infrastructure that wasn't as developed as it was in England. So there was a moment in time, in 1860, and uh, Augustine Machaut, this mathematics professor, became one of the most brilliant experimental physicists of the modern world. You know, he wrote about it, uh, his predicament, and he said about the energy crisis in, in France, he wrote, um, one cannot help coming to the conclusion that it would be prudent and wise not to fall asleep regarding this quasi-security. Eventually, industry will no longer find in Europe the resources to satisfy its prestigious expansion. Coal will undoubtedly be used up. What will industry do then? 
So, you know, Machaut had an answer. Reap the rays of the sun. You know, he really uh, began this quest, this experimental quest to run steam engines using solar energy. And within a few years, he pulled it off. But he did a lot of things. He, he kind of combined, in the beginning, two ancient innovations, the, the hot box and burning mirrors. And, uh, you know, burning mirrors are really kind of these concave and soon parabolic shapes where you, they would put little wafers of, of hammered silver to reflect onto a focal point. And they could create uh, quite high temperatures. But what, what Michaud did is he was able to innovate a whole range of primitive solar concentrating devices. Uh, one of his most famous was uh, an oven. And this was extraordinary. So he'd take a cylinder of copper, he'd blacken the outside, and then he'd, put, he'd wrap around a cylinder of glass with about a one-inch separation and with a wooden top. Now, he'd stuff inside there all of his vegetables and pot roast and all the things that he wanted to cook. And then when he put it in the sun, he added this innovation. But because on the north side, he would put this kind of vertical trough reflector. And so as the sun would heat the, the, the front of this oven, it would also hit his reflector on the back and be reflected onto the north side where you would normally have shadow. And this produced a magnificent result. He was able to cook wonderful dishes with not one bit of fuel. So, encouraged by this, he began to improve this design and, and added some more innovations. He, he would take out the food and, and then uh, fill it with a couple of quarts of wine. And on top of his little, his little boiler here, he would put a little uh, sphere with a little flute on it. And so what, he was the first one to actually distill wine into brandy. And he said it had the most agreeable flavor. Okay. You know, so the first one to distill wine into brandy only using the sun was a tremendous breakthrough for a Frenchman and for the French industry. So there was a lot of excitement with this. And uh, Machaut, in his uh, memoirs, would write, um, This new oven allowed me, for example, to make a fine pot roast in the sun. This pot roast was made out of a kilogram of beef and an assortment of vegetables. At the end of four hours, the whole dinner was perfectly cooked, despite the passage of a few clouds over the sun. And the stew was all the better, since the heat had been very steady. So, you know, Machaut really uh, then just took off. He also made a modification and turned it into a, a solar pump. <laughs> so he would have this cauldron, his boiler with his reflector would get warm in the sun, and it would expand air inside this cauldron, and it would apply pressure down to a source of water and push it out a spout. Quite extraordinary. Uh, but Machaut had many applications for this. Uh, his, his little solar still was an absolute breakthrough for treating water disease. He could distill water, any kind of water, brine, brackish, salt water, and it would vaporize it and condense out the fresh, clean, potable water. I mean, in the colonies in the, of, of France, this was an extreme problem. It's always been an issue, you know, drinking water and, and making sure you don't have disease or pathogens in there. So, and then Machot just, he kept going. 
then he would use it as a pasteurizer. He would say, here, you can uh, process freshly bottled wine and, and put it in the focal point of, of this concentrator, and it would allow you to, using the sun, to pasteurize the wine. And he saw this as a tremendous source of wealth uh, throughout not only France, but all the colonies. Here we're at the dawn of the solar age, an industrial age, and Machaut was just getting started.